Hello, and welcome to Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality, the podcast. Written by Eliezer Yudkowsky, read by Eniash Brodsky, based on the works of J.K. Rowling. Fourth part of Chapter 86, Multiple Hypothesis Testing. You think Lucius Malfoy set up his own son? Why not? From Mr. Malfoy's recorded testimony, Mr. Potter, I gather that you enjoyed some success in changing Mr. Malfoy's political views. If Lucius Malfoy learned of that earlier, he might have decided that his former heir had become a liability. I don't buy it. You are being wantonly naive, Mr. Potter. The history books are full of family disputes turned murderous, for inconveniences and threats far less than those which Mr. Malfoy posed to his father. I suppose next you will tell me that Lord Malfoy of the Death Eaters is far too gentle to wish his son such harm. Well, yes, frankly. Love is real, Professor, a phenomenon with observable effects. Brains are real, emotions are real, and love is as much a part of the real world as apples and trees. If you made experimental predictions without taking parental love into account, you'd have a heck of a time explaining why my own parents didn't abandon me at an orphanage after the incident with the science project. The defense professor did not react to this at all. Harry continued. From what Draco says, Lucius prioritized him over important Wizengamot votes. That's significant evidence, since there's less expensive ways to fake love if you just want to fake it. And it's not like the prior probability of a parent loving their child is low. I suppose it's possible that Lucius was just taking on the role of a loving father, and he renounced that role after he learned Draco was consorting with Muggleborns. But as the saying goes, Professor, one must distinguish possibility from probability. All the better the crime, if no one would believe it of him. And how would Lucius even memory-charm Hermione in the first place, without setting off the wards? He's not a professor. Oh, right. You think it's Professor Snape. Wrong. Lucius Malfoy would trust no servant with that mission. But suppose some Hogwarts professor, intelligent enough to cast a well-formed memory-charm but of no great fighting ability, is visiting Hogsmeade. From a dark alley, the black-clad form of Malfoy steps forth. He would go in person for this, and speaks to her a single word. Imperio. Legilimens, rather. I do not know if the Hogwarts wards would trigger for a returning professor under the Imperius curse. And if I do not know, Malfoy probably does not know either. But Malfoy is a perfect Occlumens at least. He might be able to use legilimency. And for the target, perhaps Aurora Sinestra. None would question the astronomy professor moving about at night. Or even more obviously, Professor Sprout, since she's the last person anyone would suspect. The defense professor hesitated minutely. Perhaps. Actually, Harry said then, putting a thoughtful frown on his face. I don't suppose you know offhand if any of the current professors at Hogwarts were around back when Mr. Hagrid got framed in 1943? Dumbledore taught transfiguration, Kettleburn taught magical creatures, and Vector taught arithmancy, Professor Quirrell said at once. 
and I believe that Bathsheba Babbling, now of ancient runes, was then a Ravenclaw prefect. But Mr. Potter, there is no reason to suppose that anyone besides you-know-who was involved in that affair. Harry shrugged artfully. Seemed worth asking the question, just to check. Anyway, Professor, I agree it's possible that some outsider legitimized a member of Hogwarts staff, and then obliviated them afterward. There's no way anyone would forget that part. But I don't think Lucius Malfoy is a probable candidate for the mastermind. It's possible, but not probable, that all of Lucius's apparent love for Draco was just a sense of duty, and that it all went up in a puff of smoke. It's possible, though not probable, that everything Lucius did in front of the Wizengamot was just an act. People's outsides do not always resemble their insides, like you said. But there's one piece of evidence that doesn't fit at all. And that would be, said the defense professor, his eyes half-lidded. Lucius tried to reject a hundred thousand galleons for Hermione's life. I saw how surprised the Wizengamot was when Lucius said he was refusing it despite the rules of honor. The Wizengamot didn't expect that of him. Why wouldn't he just take the money while acting all indignant and pretending to grit his teeth? He wouldn't actually care that much about throwing Hermione into Azkaban. There was a pause. Perhaps the role he was playing ran away with him. It does happen, Mr. Potter, in the heat of the moment. Perhaps, but it's still one more improbability to be postulated. And by the time you have to add up that many excuses in a theory, it can't be at the top of the list anymore. Anything else in particular you think I ought to think about, within the range of all other possibilities? There was a long silence. The defense professor's eyes dropped down to look at the empty teacup before them, seeming unusually distant. I suppose I can think of one final suspect, the defense professor said at last. Harry nodded. The defense professor didn't seem to notice, but only spoke on. Has the headmaster told you anything, even a hint, about Professor Trelawney's prophecy? Huh? Harry said automatically, converting his own sudden shock into the best dissembling he could manage. It probably was at the wrong level to fool Professor Quirrell, but Harry certainly couldn't take time to think before replying, Wait, but how on earth would Professor Quirrell know about that? Professor Trelawney made a prophecy? You were there to hear its beginning, Professor Quirrell said, frowning. You called out to the entire school that the prophecy could not be about you. Since you were not coming here, you were already here. He is coming! The one who will tear apart the fairies! And that was as far as Professor Trelawney had gotten before Dumbledore had grabbed her and vanished. Oh, that prophecy! Sorry, it went clear out of my mind! Harry thought he'd put too much force into the end statement and was 80% expecting Professor Quirrell to say, Aha, now Mr. Potter. What is this mysterious other prophecy you went to such lengths to deny? That is foolish, if indeed you are telling me the truth. Prophecies are not trivial things. I have racked my brain much over the little that I heard, but such a small fragment is simply too little. You think the one who's coming is the one who might have framed Hermione? As his mind allocated yet another hypothesis. 
uncertain predicate referent, he who is coming. With no offense meant to Miss Granger, the defense professor said with another frown, her life or death does not seem that important. But someone was to come, one who, in your interpretation, was not already there. And someone so significant and unknown as a player, who knows what else they may have done. Harry nodded, and mentally sighed because he was going to have to redo his Lord Voldemort odds calculation with yet another piece of evidence in the mix. Professor Quirrell spoke with eyes half-lidded, looking out like through slits. More than the question of whom the prophecy spoke, who was meant to hear it? It is said that fates are spoken to those with the power to cause them or avert them. Dumbledore, myself, you, as a distant fourth, Severus Snape. But of those four, Dumbledore and Snape would often be in Trelawney's presence. You and I are the ones who would not have spent much time around her before that Sunday. I think it quite likely that the prophecy was meant for one of us, before Dumbledore took the prophetess away. Did the headmaster say nothing more to you? I thought I heard too much force in that denial, Mr. Potter. Honestly, no. It had honestly slipped clear out of my mind. Then I am rather put out with him. In fact, I think that I am angry. Harry said nothing. He didn't even sweat. It might have been a poor reason for confidence, but on this particular score, Harry did happen to be innocent. Professor Quirrell nodded once, sharply, as though in acknowledgement. If there is nothing more to say between us, Mr. Potter, you may go. I can think of one other suspect, someone you didn't put on your list at all. Would you analyze him to me, Professor? There was another of those moments of silence that was almost a sound in itself. As for that suspect, I think you shall have to prosecute him on your own, Mr. Potter, without help from me. I have heard such requests before, and experience leads me to refuse. Either I will do too good a job of prosecuting myself and convince you that I am guilty, or else you will decide that my prosecution was too half-hearted and that I am guilty. I will remark only this in my defense, that I would have needed a very good reason indeed to jeopardize your fragile alliance with the heir to House Malfoy. Hypothesis, the defense professor. April 8th, 1992, 8.37 p.m. So I fear I must take my leave, Dumbledore was saying gravely. I promised Quirinus, that is to say, I promised the defense professor that I would not make any attempt to uncover his true identity in my own person, or any other. And why'd you make a full promise like that, then? Snapped Mad-Eye Moody. It was an unalterable condition of his employment, or so he said. Dumbledore glanced at Professor McGonagall, a wry smile briefly flitting over his face. And Minerva made it clear to me that Hogwarts required a competent defense professor this year. 
even if I had to haul Grindelwald out of Nurmengard and prevail on all the factions to persuade him to take the position. I did not quite phrase it in that fashion. Your expression said it for you, my dear. And so, soon the four of them, Harry, Professor McGonagall, the Potions Master, and Alistair Moody, a.k.a. Mad-Eye, were ensconced all by themselves in the Headmaster's office. It was strange how the Headmaster's office seemed unbalanced without the Headmaster in it. If you didn't have the ancient wizened master to make it all seem solemn, you were just four people trying to have a serious meeting while surrounded by bizarre, noisy gidgets. Clearly visible from where Harry had perched himself on his chair's arm was a truncated conical object, like a cone with its top snipped off, slowly spinning around a pulsating central light which it shaded but did not obscure. And each time the inner light pulsated, the assembly made a... That sounded oddly distant, muffled like it was coming from behind four solid walls, even though the spinning conical section thingy was only a meter or two away. And then there were the various still-breathing bodies of Harry Potter he'd stashed in one quiet corner, cleaning up a mess that was his own in more ways than one. Only one body wasn't inside a copy of the invisibility cloak, but then it merely took a small effort of concentration for Harry to perceive his other selves beneath the cloak of which he was master. An effort which Harry had carefully not put forth earlier to avoid getting advanced temporal information he wanted to determine by his own decisions. The sad thing was that by this point, having his own body visibly lying in a corner didn't seem all that crazy. It was just... Hogwarts. All right then, Moody said, looking rather sour about it. From within his leather armor, the scarred man took out a black folder. This is a copy of what Amelia's people put together. She almost certainly knows we've got it, but it's all off the books, that clear? Anyway. And then Moody told them who the Department of Magical Law Enforcement thought Quirinus Quirrell really was. A seemingly ordinary Hogwarts student, though talented enough that he'd been only narrowly beaten out for the head boy position who'd gone vacationing in Albania after his graduation, disappeared, returned after 25 years, and then been caught up in the Wizarding War. It was murdering the House of Monroe that made Voldy's name. Until then, he was just another dark wizard with delusions of grandeur and Bellatrix Black. But after that... Moody snorted. Every fool in the country flocked to serve him. You would have hoped the wizard Gumbot would turn serious once they realized Voldy was willing to kill their own sacred selves. And that's just what the bastards did, hope that some other bastard would turn serious. None of the cowards wanted to step in front. It was Monroe, Crouch, Bones, and Longbottom. That was nearly everyone in the ministry who would dare say a word that might give Voldy offense. That was how your house came to be ennobled, Mr. Potter. There is an ancient law that if anyone ends a most ancient house, whoever avenges that blood will be made noble. To be sure, the house of Potter was already older than some lines called ancient, 
But yours was titled A Noble House of Britain After the End of the War, in recognition that you had avenged the most ancient house of Monroe. Flush of gratitude and all that. It didn't last. But at least James and Lily got a fancy title and a useless medal to take to their graves. But that's leaving out eight years of complete horror after Monroe disappeared, and Regulus Black, who was Monroe's private source and death eaters were pretty sure, was executed by Voldy, like a dam breaking and gore flooding out, drowning the whole country. Alvis bloody Dumbledore himself had to step into Monroe's shoes, and that was barely enough for us to survive. Harry listened with an odd sense of unreality. Some of it felt right, matched up with observation, especially with the speech Professor Quirrell had made before Christmas. And yet, this was Professor Quirrell they were talking about. So that's who the department thinks is your defense professor. Mad-Eye Moody finished up his account. Now what do you think, son? Well... It is also possible to have a mask behind the mask. The obvious next thought is that this David Monroe person died in the war after all, and this is just someone else pretending to be David Monroe, pretending to be Quirinus Quirrell. That's obvious? Dear Merlin. Really, boy? Said Mad-Eye Moody, his blue eyes spinning rapidly. I'd say that's a little... paranoid. You don't know Professor Quirrell, Harry did not say. It's an easy theory to test. Just check whether the defense professor remembers something about the war that the real David Monroe would have known. Though I suppose, if he's playing the part of David Monroe pretending to be someone else, he has a good excuse to pretend he's pretending he doesn't know what you're talking about. A little paranoid. Not paranoid enough. Constant vigilance. Think about it, lad. What if the real David Monroe never came back from Albania? There was a pause. I see. Of course you do. Don't mind me, please. I'll just sit here quietly going mad. In this line of work, if you survive, you learn that there's three kinds of dark wizards. Moody said grimly. His wand wasn't pointed at anyone. It was angled slightly downward, but it was in his hand. It had never left his hand since the moment he'd entered the room. There's dark wizards that have one name. There's dark wizards that have two names. And there's dark wizards that change names like you and I change clothes. I saw Monroe go through three Death Eaters like he was snapping twigs. There's not many wizards that good at age 45. Dumbledore, maybe, but not many others. Perhaps that is true, said the potions master from where he was lurking. But what of it, Mad-Eye? Whatever his identity, Monroe was surely the Dark Lord's enemy. I've heard Death Eaters curse his name even after they thought him dead. They feared him well. So far as defense professors are concerned, I shall take it and be grateful. Moody swung around to glare at her. Just where the devil was Monroe all those years he was gone, eh? Maybe he thought he could make a name for himself in prison by opposing Voldy, and vanished away when he found out he was wrong. Now why'd he come back now, ha? Huh? What's his new plan? He, uh, he says he always wanted to be a great defense professor because all the best fighting wizards have taught at Hogwarts. 
And he kind of is being an incredibly good defense professor, actually. I mean, if he just wanted to keep up a disguise, he could get away with much sloppier work. Professor McGonagall was nodding firmly. Naive. I suppose you all have wondered if your defense professor set up the whole house of Monroe to be wiped out. What? Our mystery wizard hears about a missing kid from a most ancient house of Britain, steps into the shoes of David Monroe, but stays away from the real Monroe family. But eventually the house is bound to notice something wrong, so this imposter somehow prods Voldy into wiping them all out, maybe leak the password they given him for their wards. And then he was a lord of the Wizengamot. There seemed to be a fight going on inside Harry's mind between Hufflepuff 1, who'd never trusted the defense professor in the first place, and Hufflepuff 2, who was far too loyal to Harry's friend, Professor Quirrell, to believe something like that just because Moody said so. It is kind of obvious, though, observed his Slytherin part. I mean... Do you actually believe that under natural circumstances, anyone would end up as the last heir to a most ancient house, and Lord Voldemort killed his family, and he has to avenge his martial arts sensei? If anything, I'd say he went too far over the top in setting up his new identity as the ideal literary hero. That sort of thing doesn't happen in real life. This coming from an orphan who was raised unaware of his heritage, commented Harry's inner critic, with a prophecy about him. You know, I don't think we've ever read a story about two equally destined heroes competing to see who's cliched enough to take down the villain. Yes, replied the central Harry over the distant vrooping noise in the background. It's a very sad life we lead, and you're not helping. There's only one thing to do at this point, said Ravenclaw, and we all know what it is, so why argue? But, Harry replied, how do we test experimentally whether or not Professor Quirrell is the original David Monroe? I mean, what sort of observable behaves differently depending on whether he's the real David Monroe or an imposter? What do you want me to do about it, Mad-Eye? Professor McGonagall was demanding. I can't. You can, the scarred man said, glaring at her fiercely. Just fired the bloody defense professor. You say that every year. Yes, and I am always right. Constant vigilance or no, Alistair, the students must be taught. Moody snorted. Pah! I swear the curse gets worse every year, as you lock it more and more reluctant to let them go. Your precious Professor Quirrell would have to be Grindelwald in disguise to get himself sent off. Is he? Harry couldn't help asking. I mean, could he actually be? I check Grindy's cell every two months. He was there in March. Could the person in the cell be a ringer? I administer a blood test for his identity, son. Where do you keep the blood you use as a reference? In a safe place. Something like a smile was stretching the scarred lips. Have you considered the OR office after you graduate? Alistair, the defense professor does have a health condition. I suppose you will call it suspicious in itself, but it is by no means certain that it will be any ill-doing on his part which prevents us from renewing his employment. Yes, his little nap times. 
Amelia thinks he stepped into the path of a high-level curse. Sounds to me more like a dark ritual gone wrong. You've no proof of that. That man might as well be wearing a sign saying "Dark Wizard" in glowing green letters over his head. Ah,、uh, Harry said, "It didn't seem like an especially good time to ask what Mister Moody thought of the 'Not all sacrificial rituals are evil' standpoint." Excuse me, but you said earlier that Professor Quirrell—I mean, the old David Monroe—I mean, the Monroe from the seventies. Anyway, you said that person used the killing curse. What does that imply? Does somebody have to be a dark wizard to use it? Moody shook his head. I've used it myself. All it takes is power and a certain mood. The grimacing lips were showing teeth. The first time I cast it was against a wizard named Gerald Grice. And you can ask me what he did after you graduate from Hogwarts. But why is it unforgivable then? I mean, a cutting hex can kill someone too. So why is it any better to use a reducto instead of a vaticadab? Shut your mouth! Someone might take it the wrong way. You're saying that incantation. You look too young to cast it, but there's such a thing as polyjuice. And to answer your question, boy, there's two reasons why that spells in the blackest book. The first is that the killing curse strikes directly at the soul, and it'll just keep going until it hits one, straight through shields, straight through walls. There's a reason why even Orr's fighting Death Eaters weren't allowed to use it before the Monroe Act. Ah, that does seem like an excellent reason to ban. I'm not finished, son. The second reason is that the Killing Curse doesn't just take a powerful bit of magic. You've got to mean it. You've got to want someone dead, and not for the greater good either. Killing Grice didn't bring back Blair Roche or Nathan Ruffus or David Capito. It wasn't for justice or to stop him from doing it again. I wanted him dead. You understand now, lad? You don't have to be a dark wizard to use that spell, but you can't be Albus Dumbledore either. And if you're arrested for killing with it, there's no possible defense. I see. You can't want a person dead as an instrumental value on the way to some positive future consequence. You can't cast it if you believe it's a necessary evil. You have to actually want them dead for the sake of being dead, as a terminal value in your utility function. A magically embodied preference for death over life, striking within the plane of pure life force. That does sound like a difficult spell to block. Not difficult. Impossible. Harry nodded gravely, but David Monroe. Or whoever used the killing curse against a couple of Death Eaters even before they wiped out his family. Does that mean he already had to hate them? Like the martial arts story was probably true? Moody shook his head slightly. One of the dark truths of the killing curse, son, is that once you've cast it the first time, it doesn't take much hate to do it again. It damages the mind. Again, Moody shook his head. No. It's the killing that does that. Murder tears a soul, but that's just the same if it's a cutting hex. The killing curse doesn't crack your soul; it just takes a cracked soul to cast. If there was a sad expression on the scarred face, it could not be read. But that doesn't tell us much about Monroe. The ones like Dumbledore who will never be able to cast a curse all their lives because they'll never crack no matter what. They're the rare ones, very rare. 
it only takes a little cracking. There was a strange, heavy feeling in Harry's chest. He'd wondered what exactly it had meant that Lily Potter had tried to cast the killing curse at Lord Voldemort with her last breath. But surely it was forgivable. It was right and proper for a mother to hate the dark wizard who was coming to kill her baby, mocking her for how she couldn't stop him. There was something wrong with you as a parent if you couldn't cast Avada Kedavra in that situation. And no other spell could have gone past the Dark Lord's shields. You'd have to at least try to hate the Dark Lord enough to want him dead for the sake of dead, if that was the only way to save your baby. It only takes a little cracking. Enough. What would you have us do? Moody's smile twisted. Get rid of the defense professor and see if all your troubles mysteriously clear up. Bet you a gallion they do. Professor McGonagall looked like she was in pain. Alistair, but will you teach the classes if- Ha! If I ever say yes to that question, check me for polyjuice because it's not me. I'll test it experimentally, Harry said. And then, as everyone looked at him, I'll ask Professor Quirrell a question that the real David Monroe would know, like who else was in the Slytherin class of 1945 or something like that. Hopefully without making it obvious. It wouldn't be definitive proof. He could have studied the role, but it would be evidence. Still, Mr. Moody, even if Professor Quirrell isn't the original Monroe, I'm not sure that getting rid of him is a free action. He saved my life twice. What? When? How? Once when he knocked down a bunch of witches who were summoning me toward the ground. Once when he figured out that the Dementor was draining me through my wand. And if Professor Quirrell wasn't the one who set up Draco Malfoy in the first place, then he saved Draco's life, and things would be a lot worse if he hadn't. If the defense professor isn't behind it all, he's not someone we can afford to just get rid of. Professor McGonagall nodded firmly. End fourth part of chapter 86 Thank you to the following people. Malai Moody. James. Dumbledore. Drake Walker. Minerva McGonagall. Read by Autumn Rachel Dryden. Severus Snape by Brian Jones. This chapter's original text, production notes, and attribution links, along with archives and much more, can be found at hpmorpodcast.com. If you would like to learn more about the art of rationality, please visit lesswrong.com, an online community of aspiring rationalists founded by Eliezer Yudkowsky. Some sound effects used are courtesy of the Free Sound Project. The music used is Catch That Goblin by Skaven. Thank you for listening, and come back next week for the conclusion to Chapter 86, Multiple Hypothesis Testing. 